3: Hello and welcome to Off the Beaten Track podcast. My name's Stu Wiffin. I'm your host, and it's another week. Therefore, it's another episode, and today's episode is with Daniel Pembleton. Uh, let me sorry, let me just correct myself there. It's with two-time Golden Globe award nominee and composer Daniel Pembleton. I think that's uh, how we should address him for the uh Opening lines of this podcast, I met with Daniel at the WeWork Buildings in uh, uh, just off of Liverpool Street in London. I uh, was absolutely thrilled that he, he gave up some of his time to, to, to come and talk to me. Um, I should do a big thanks to Mr. Ben Berlin, uh, my good friend who facilitated this episode. Uh, big shout out to Ben as well and his music. He releases his music under the name Ham Plaza. And he releases music on the Yo No One label. And you can go and buy his debut album, A Noe, Uh it's for sale at Rough Trade and it's uh, available via Bandcamp. And go and check out his um crazy videos uh as well. There's one for his single um Chicken and one for his other single, <laughs> Carrots. And, uh, yeah, go and check it out. Ham Plaza, H-A-M-P-L-A-Z-A. But back to today's job at hand, which is introducing today's guest, which is Daniel Pembleton. And one more little shout-out before we get on with it. Big thanks to Scroobies, Pip, and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network and 76 for producing this. Let's get on with the job at hand. Please enjoy Off the beaten and Track podcast with the wonderful Daniel Pembleton. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing, www.sosclothing.co.uk. Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South on sea just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fair Wear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk. Official sponsors of Off The Beat & Track Podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat & Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Okay, we're recording. We are at the WeWork building and sitting opposite me today is composer Daniel Pemberton. Hello. How you doing? Uh, yeah, all right. Yeah. yeah, good to be out of the house. Nice, nice. What are you currently working on?
1: Uh, i just finished Dark Crystal. Which nice. New Netflix, uh, half hour. they say not half hour, i to talk about... New Netflix, like, ten hours of puppets, um, which has taken up quite a lot of my life recently. So just finished that. Just finished a thing called Motherless Brooklyn with Ed Norton, and... Uh, and then also yesterday, the Beatles, Danny Wilde film. Just, just the small stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Dark Crystal is that a CGI? Or is it puppets? It's all puppets. Nice. So it's really cool. So it's like, uh, like, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it because I was just quite tired at the time, and I was like, this looks too much work, and and they really tried. They were like we really really want you to do this blah 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 and put a lot of like kept hassling me and i was like okay they do seem to really want me to do it yeah and then but i was like quite unsure and then they said just come down set if you don't like it just go home yeah don't you have to do it and um as soon as you're on set you're like oh my god this is amazing because everything's physical it's all sets all puppets there's like like rooms of people like making all the puppet hair and clothes and and it's like Unbelievable! Like nothing I've seen like that before in TV, you know, in my experience. Um, and I think it's the only show that is all puppets. There's no humans in it, so it's like super unique. So I was like, as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, I've probably got to do this because it looks really special.
3: So we, we might as well just go straight into it, and 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 we'll, we'll get on with the, the song choices in a while, because I'm I'm just curious as to what the process is for for scoring something so you you go to set well, for instance like that you, you go to set before you before you've even agreed or do you go and, and have
1: a every job is different so some like like literally every film is different like it's good to go on set it's because you can kind of sometimes get a really good just it helps you start to visualize what's happening i mean i try and get involved at script stage so i'll try and get involved before they start shooting and write alongside them shooting and working with the editors but everything's different sometimes i've come in like you know i did a black mirror episode and i came in on that when the episode was kind of pretty much finished they shot it all they edited it so how does that work then? So at that point, if it's finished, do,
3: do, do you sit down and, and, and just literally watch it and think what works? or Yeah,
1: you watch it. They often do a thing called, like, temp music, which is a nightmare, which is where they lay in music from other things to kind of give you a vibe of what they want and... That's, like, the big problem in a lot of Hollywood film scoring is they do that, they get used to it, they want it to sound like that. So there's been lot, lots of stuff in the news about that, hasn't there? I've, I've seen stuff about that. that. Yeah, but a lot, of, a lot of, like, big Hollywood scores are often, like, you know, they've laid someone else's music in, they've had to rip that off, and, um, you know, and someone, that becomes a new film score and that gets laid in something else and that gets ripped off. And so it's, you get these kind of scores that don't have enough fresh stuff in them yeah. and the only way to get fresh stuff is really come right at the beginning and create the temp music for them to put in and make stuff that's totally different so I always try and work on projects where I think we can do that and try and create like a new sound and then experiment with that quite heavily and, and it's a lot more work because you're doing like almost three times the amount of music because loads of it is going to go in the bin yeah. and you're writing stuff in a way that you expect to fail because you're trying to push boundaries a bit rather than just like, okay, here's some scary music, boom. Yeah, of course. Um, but then that's when you get the really exciting stuff and it change, You know, so it's really interesting. I was watching a series on Amazon that's just come out, which I'm not going to say what it is. Okay. But uh, they've obviously tempted a very large proportion of this show with my music really yeah and so it's quite weird and that's the reason I found out about it because everyone's like they're ripping off your music and you know it's really interesting to see where you watch like oh here's something I did ages ago in a weird in a film that was a lot more experimental ish in terms of its approach and now it's being slowly co-opted into the you know into a sort of another, another movie and how does that make you feel it actually made me feel quite good, because there's a lot of, like, mad... Like, there's, like, stuff in it, like me breathing and stuff, which is from King Arthur, and you can hear it in there, and you're like, this is interesting, because you, you, you know, it makes me feel like I pushed the goalpost a tiny bit to the left in terms of trying to make film scoring different and not feel the same, because film music can be anything, and we're still very caught up on the idea of film music is a big orchestra, and horns... That go and drums that go boom, boom, boom. And it can be those things and be absolutely amazing. And a lot of the greatest film music is just those things. But it can be so many other things as well. And I'm always trying to interested to see how far I can push things into the other things category. Good. Let's start. I track one. Yeah. Song with the greatest intro. Uh, yeah this is a tricky one because I'm still not 100% sure on this on like what I think there's a couple of things I was thinking of like I really like um, The Edge by David McCallum, which is uh, basically a David Axelrod track uh, and everyone now knows that as the intro to um, Snoop Dogg Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre Dang ding 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 but that intro is brilliant the big brass horn intro yeah Um, and it's got a great sense of epicness and danger before you get into this awesomely cool riff. So I like that a lot. I also really like the intro on the last Daft Punk album, Give Life Back to Music. Okay, I can't remember that. The first track is brilliant. It's just this really big build-up into, again, a disco track. and then. But also, I think the one I was going to go for was Grease. By Frankie Valli. Interesting but, that it's a film score. Yeah, it's weird. I don't really. I don't like Greece. I don't have a lot of time for Greece. I'm not like, oh, I love Greece. I, I find Greece a bit annoying. But the intro to that track is so good. It's like so exciting, and then you're straight into groove. I think a great intro is something that is like a fanfare, you yep. know, something that kind of promises excitement. Yeah. Danger thrills, and then you get down to business, which is like a really solid groove, which the Grease one does. I mean, Grease is a song, it's such a weird song, because it's like, what is this about? Grease is the word. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense, yeah. but it's got a great intro.
3: Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a real call of arms, isn't it? It just captures your attention, and then the second you're on board, bass line drops, and it's, it's just got a groove, is not it?
1: Yeah, it's... and it's only like a couple of seconds. Yeah. little Yeah. then. <laughs> And that is, I think, when you can pull that off and get that to really work, Yeah, it's brilliant. Frankie Valley knew his way around, though, didn't he? I think yeah. he knew what he was doing. Actually, another good intro, which is the opposite, which is uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which is the complete opposite, mm-hmm. which is an intro that goes on for far too long, like eight minutes or something, before the track kicks in. Yeah. But... It's great. It really builds up the anticipation. Yeah. For the, for
3: I, I think everyone that's ever done this generally does go for something quite instant and, yeah. and, and not them kind of more sort of laborious builds to, to, to something beautiful. It always seems to be something quite snappy and, and, and sharp. Um, so when when you approach... Because this, uh, this is going to be quite interesting because I've spoke to plenty of musicians... None of which that, that, that work in, in in film, so i 'm interested to know how because I know through being in bands how i 'd approach yeah. writing a single or you know an opening track for an album what 's your process of an introduction to to to, to creating music is, is obviously i presume the film's at the forefront of your mind
1: yeah, writing music for films is interesting compared to writing for albums in that you're you've got a very different task ahead of you and it's not about writing a cool track or a track that has a cool intro and a, like, it's like literally writing something that works for the scene. And I'll always do a lot of work on my soundtrack albums after I finish the film to try and make them better listening experiences. So I will try and try and rework pieces so they have a, a stronger intro and a better structure. Because often in a film... Like, the hardest part of film scoring is what I call man walks through a door music. And it's like, you've got to get a guy through that door to that place in 30 seconds, and it feel okay, and it do something. And that's the hardest bit. Everyone thinks film music is like, I've written this cool track that will be cool over a big car chase or, like, you know, or something blowing up. And to be honest, any track over anything like that, like a montage, will probably work. Yeah, And they're actually easy they're not easy to write but they're easier to write the really hard stuff is the really stuff you don't get appreciated for which is the grafty kind of like we need to start here and we need to feel a threat but not too much of a threat but then this bit's funny but we don't want to make it too funny but this bit's definitely funny and then there's something that makes you feel they're falling in love and then a robot blows everyone up or something I don't know and it's like trying to do that in thirty seconds, and it not feel like uh, is the really hard thing. Whereas I guess you're more sort of
3: your you pop musician or your pop songwriter or your rock songwriter doesn't have them considerations, right? It's just like right, I've got to write first song, mid late chorus, and, and 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 make it as hooky and as as, as you know.
1: Yeah, everyone's got different, like, like you know, it's the same, it's like, it's like writing a track for an album and writing a track for playing live on stage. You've got different considerations in some ways. And as a film composer, you're just having to constantly be on your toes to adapt all the time. Because it's not like, also, you get a film and it's locked, like finished. The film is constantly changing. So you're working on films as they're happening. And I've done things, I've got, I've got this great, riff and all this kind of stuff and they're like yeah it needs to change here and you're like i can't change that without destroying the piece and one of the reasons a lot of music film music these days is almost quite musically not as sophisticated as it used to be is because in the old days you would get a film that was locked and you'd go and write your music to it these days that kind of never happens so you're kind of writing alongside there editing the film you have to re-edit your music So you have to kind of end up making stuff that is more adaptable, um, which can be great because you can end up having very strong synergy between the process. But also, it can be a nightmare because you know if you've got like you know if you write a song, let's say you're in Wonderwall, you know you know what you, you want a certain amount of time before that chorus kicks in, yeah, and the anticipation. But if they're like that chorus needs to kick in three and a half bars earlier. You're like, how the... F- I yeah. do do that? And that's the constant battle of trying to work out ways. Like, I'm always trying to make my scores feel very simple and that maybe it's just a track that someone's just laid on and it just happens to work. Yeah. But behind that is, like, tons of work of trying to work out how can I make something that will hit all these points and have... Devices within it like percussion that you know if I need to like steal half a bar, can I do that with like just breaking down to a little bit of percussion yeah. or you know if these are the chords or the structure or the melody do I hold that back till this moment and then just count time some way between that and so you are doing a lot more juggling as a film composer. And on the plus side, you, you don't have to lay your cards down as heavily as you do as a songwriter, where you're like, this is a great song. Whereas you're always in flux, you're always just making things. But yes, yeah, different discipline. Do you
3: feel a big weight of responsibility when you get a script, like uh, that, 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 that you've got to deliver the you know the best you can
1: possibly. Yeah, you don't, like, I don't know if I feel, like, there's always response, like, there's always responsibility, and one of the hardest things of, again, being a film composer is just, it's a huge amount of pressure on you, you know, you got like a, you know, by the time films are at the stage where they're doing music, they've done everything else, and the only things they can really change are the edit, the music, and those are the people who are, like, first up to get shot, like, if it's not working, Um, How would you cope with that pressure? I just, I don't know, I just kind of cope with it. I just kind of like, I'm always, the thing is I'm always concerned with what I think is best for the film. So I'm always looking at a film through sitting in an audience and being like, if I was sitting in the cinema and watching this film, what would I think? Yeah and how would I react, and like, what would get me excited? Because you know what it's like, you go and see a movie, you know, I'll go see some superhero movie, and there'll be like a million superheroes hitting each other, I'm just like, I'm so bored, I just don't care, and it's, I've seen it all, I've heard it all a million times. Whereas, you know, you do some little twist on that, and you suddenly be like, oh, what's that? I think you always want to make people look into the reality of what's happening because I think so much of film can often resort to a shorthand cliche of saying, oh, this is that thing that happens in films, here it is. Yeah. Whereas the best kind of films are where you kind of go, wow, that would be interesting or, or like weird or what's that?
3: Yeah. So has it, how much has it affected your enjoyment of just going to the cinema and watching a film that maybe you've not worked on? A lot. It's like not very <laughs>
1: good for that. Like, you go... I mean, look, I love, I love going to cinema. Um, but I will spend a lot of time listening to the score. Yeah. Getting annoyed at, like, how low it's probably mixed. Um, might get annoyed at the scoring. Or I might get blown away by the scoring. My favourite films are where I come out angry because I'm jealous yeah. of, like, how good it is. And I basically... If I feel like... If I come out of a movie thinking both exhilarated and excited because i'm like that's everything i want to do in film music and depressed because i'm like i can't do that or i couldn't do that or that's yeah. way better or i should have done that then that's a really good sign and for me that's what i love that when you go at, when you come out of a movie and you just experience something and you're like wow what was that that was different yeah. and even if i went to see like i went to see uh i went to see a really dodgy film last night called to live and die in LA. It's like an 80s film by William Freekin. It was on the Prince Charles. And it was pretty hokey to be honest. But like uh, two months before that I went to see Sorcerer, which was by him. And So William Freekin did like French Connection and uh, Exorcist. And he made this movie called Sorcerer. It's about these guys driving a truck through the jungle. And I'd never really known much about it. And it kind of came out in 77. When Star Wars came out, it's like so different, just sort of bombed. And it just sort of died, and they've done this new print of it, and it's kind of getting this new, like, cult life, and it's amazing. And you just come out of the movie, like, holy shit, what the fuck was that? I like, yeah. how come I've never seen that movie? And just the experience of it, of like just a bit where they're trying to get a truck across a bridge. And it's so exciting because it feels so real, and you can, like, just feel the. T- the reality of being in that situation which is a lot of movies I think is like you want to just go and escape and experience a different view on life Trek 2
3: yeah the first thing I remember hearing that had an emotional
1: impact on you Um, so yeah this is again Trixie in that I don't know what the exact there probably was plenty before that, but the one I remember having a massive massive impact on me was probably uh, Oxygen by Jean-Michel Jean. And I, I wasn't super interested in music. I was kind of, like, kind of getting into, like, pop music in a way, but I didn't really like pop music. I didn't like words. What age are we talking here? So we're talking, uh, what year did all Left to My Devices by the Petrol Boys come out? That would have been nineteen
3: eighty-seven, I, uh, eighty-eight. 88? I mean? No, I think actually was 87, so I reckon maybe 88, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah so been around then, so yeah. I would have been about 10 or 11. What a great pop record that is. That is an, that is an amazing pop record, uh, and I remember my dad took me to... Uh, the planetarium which was next to Madame Swords, it's now some hokey world of Marvel superheroes thing but it used to be the planetarium and we just watched this show about space and it had lasers and planets but it also had synthesizer music and I had no idea what this was and literally it felt like someone had flicked a switch in my head like I just remember it being like so powerful and being what the hell was that I, I just remember sitting in the car. It's really weird. So I sat in the car outside, and the reason I remember the petrol Boys is because the petrol Boys left my own devices. I was playing on the radio. And I'd sort of got into it at that time, but I still found it weird, this guy talking about his shopping. Um, uh, <laughs> but I remember just sitting in his car, literally going like, wow, something really weird just happened in my head. And the next day, my dad went to the library by his work Got me uh, two CDs, which was Rendezvous by Jean Michel Shah mm-hmm. and Omadawn by Mike Oldfield, with a kind of like, oh, you might like these. So I copied them onto one side each of a 90 minute cassette. Jean Michel Shah on one side, Mike Oldfield on the other.
3: And how old were you then?
1: How old was I? Yeah. Probably about 10, I think 10 or 11. It's weighty music for a 10 year old. Yeah. Anyway, I basically caned that tape every day for a year. Like I literally listened to it every day and that was kind of my like super awakening into music and I basically got really into electronic sort of proggy kind of Sean Michelle Jean, Mike Michael Phil, Ellis, Art of Noise, Tamita Tangerine Dream, all those kind of things and the weirdest thing is I will go record at Abbey Road I record at Abbey Road a lot and um it's always, like, when you're doing these big film projects, it's, like, exhausting. There's so much to do. They're, like, huge, huge, like, like battles almost. Like, you just have to get through. Like, they're really great experiences, but they're just so massive and tiring. And, you know, I'll, and I'll leave often at, like, I don't know, i leave, like, two in the morning or one in the morning, and I get, like, a car back, like a cab, and sometimes the driver takes a short, like, this this route that stops and, Right outside where this moment happened. And it's so weird. If I'm properly tired, I will sometimes get really, really emotional at this point because I look at it. Because I'll be like, that one spot my entire life changed. And if that hadn't happened, who knows where I'd be. And the idea that now I'm doing these like, you know, like huge orchestras or crazy films. And it's really weird to drive past the spot where it all started and it'd be so visible. And the spot, be exactly the same I can yeah. so remember like how the car was parked all the buildings around me it's really weird that's incredible um, and it's really odd going past it like, like at two in the morning like tired but exhilarated I, I
3: remember um, being in bed when I was very young and uh, and being able to open my curtains and look along from Essex and I could see Destination Docklands by Jean-Michel Jarre. Yeah. I could see it from my bedroom window. And uh, just desperately wishing I was there because we'd, we'd grown up around my friends whose dad was into synth proggy stuff. Yeah. And he had a, a, an old VHS of Rendezvous Houston. Yeah. And Somewhat, we used to yeah. sit there and watch that. And what's the one where he's got the asbestos gloves playing laser. The, uh, the laser? I remember it was like, it's from outer space, stuff like that.
1: It was absolutely incredible. It's weird. I, went to, I went to Destination Docklands. That was oh, like, really? That was like my first concert. And it was, it was kind of nuts. It was really mad. It was very weird because I'd never been to a concert before. I didn't really know what they like. it was. Yeah. I really, really These wanted
3: These are Jim Chouchard concerts, by the way, for people. Yeah, it's
1: like, like it's right? also, those concerts were crazy because what I loved about them was they, are, they were so ambitious yeah. in scale. Like, no one's really done anything like that since. Yeah. And I kind of love... That madness of like, let's just take over a whole part of the city. It's kind of like the Olympics. It's like we're gonna, you're gonna get the Jean-Michel Jarre concert. Like, and it was really weird that he came to London at the time that I was like super obsessed by. Yeah, I basically the album that came out then, Revolutions, which does not stand up as well. Sadly, mm-hmm. some of the earlier ones. the The Jean-Michel Jarre trajectory starts very strong and sort of. Goes up and down. Yeah. First two albums are brilliant. Magnetic Field is okay. Zuluk is a fucking amazing album, completely overlooked. Jean Michel Jarre gets a load of flack, which he doesn't deserve. Because some of those, I think it's because he's so much of a showman and wasn't like into being the cool craft worky kind. Yeah. And I get why he gets flack, but some of those records are phenomenal. And like Zuluk is an amazing record where it's like, It's kind of got, like, some talking heads playing bass and stuff on it. And it's got, like, mad sampling. It's, like, his sampling record. Um, And, yeah, it's, like, I mean, it's weird. He was, like, my superhero. And it's really odd. I met him, like, a while ago. How was that? It was really odd. I didn't actually want to meet him. like What, just in case he was a tit? Yeah, and he was really cool. And I'd just done Steve Jobs, and he'd, he'd just seen it. And so we started talking about that and then we started talking about different ways of working the software and he just started working with Ableton and he was talking about how much he loved Ableton. And I was like, oh, I tried it, I didn't like it. And, then we t- and I was like, this is so cool. I'm talking about synthesizing things <laughs> with Jean-Michel Jarre on, a, on a, like a one-to-one level. This is like my 12-year-old self would be like high-fiving me like crazy. Yeah, that's wonderful. So
3: aside from hearing that at the planetarium, like, was was there music on at home growing up?
1: Uh, the parents have records, yeah, like older dad, brothers or sisters, and like I got like I'm the kind of oldest. I got tons of sisters. I got four sisters, but my dad, my mum wasn't really interested in music. She'd be like Radio Four. Like, my dad was into classical. Sort of would you'd find a kind of like secret stash of like a bit of Pink Floyd and some other things. But my dad was mainly into classical. So that's kind of what would kick out of the house. I also remember a album of medieval music, weirdly. Right. Um, which uh, I still... Like, that's kind of had a weird impact, that album. Like, uh, on later scores I've done, including Dark Crystal. Um, but it's not... It wasn't... I don't come from, like, a super musical family. It's, like, more arty, fashion-y, graphic-y. And... It still feels weird that that's my job, like yeah. music, because I always kind of feel like, ah, I wasn't really a music person. I just ended up becoming a music person.
3: Hello. I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry. It won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So, if you want to hear
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: The songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode so you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. You seem to be doing alright here, mate.
1: Yeah, it's weird, basically. <laughs> I've kind of like slightly blagged my way through so long But yeah. I'm like, well, I know what I'm doing now. Like, you know, you have this kind of imposter syndrome thing but I kind of think, well, I've done it long enough yeah. that like even if I don't know what I'm doing I know something yeah you've yeah. earned your stripes yeah definitely
3: track three the yeah. song that reminds you of your time at school
1: uh, well yeah this is a weird one because obviously lots of different things you listen to at school um, but I think the one that had the biggest impact was basically when I was finishing school which was end of my A-levels and that was Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Yeah. I just discovered, I was going through this period, I just discovered like John Barry and the Beach Boys kind of in the same year, and basically got obsessed by them and caned Pet Sounds and basically played it every day and probably listened to it every day. I can't really listen to it now, which is a shame because I think I overdosed on it. And I think I I, I can't work out why it connected to me so much, and I think it must have been part of, you know, because the whole album was about him using his, like, sort of innocence and youth and all that kind of thing. And I was kind of finishing school. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was kind of doing, I was doing music at this time anyway. But it always reminds me of being in my bedroom, like, revising for exams and thinking of that, like, oh, where's my life going to go next and all that sort of stuff. I
3: think I was probably around the same age as well. And it was, I'd grown up here in surfing USA and all of that. And, and I just, you see it in all the music mags, like you need to hear pet sands. So I'd look on it and it was like, I only know, like, wouldn't it be uh, nice? And it was like, I don't know any of the others. And when I first put it on, I just thought, what's this? This is all over the place. This is, yeah. this is not like surf pop. And then I read Brian's book yeah, and and I just put it on every time I, I read this like, more of this book. And it just clicked, and and it was where he talks about Caroline, and then hearing Caroline no, yeah, it was like oh my god, this this is the greatest bit of music ever made, apart um, from Sleep
1: John B, which is
3: shit. And uh, but that don't
1: <laughs> I hate Sloop uh, John. I wish that wasn't on that album. But um, like certain albums. So I'm like like Radiohead. Should have ended on those surprises, for OK Computer. What's it finish on? Ah, oh, finishes on something else. It doesn't finish. Like I'm like, if you finish it, there, perfect. It doesn't finish on exit music, does it? I don't think so. No, I can't remember. It doesn't. I always remember being annoyed that like it had a perfect ending and then they put another track on. Yeah. And I'm always like, ah, oh, it's like Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. You like end it when they're on top of the bloody mountain. Yeah. Don't do all the bloody meeting back in the shire with yeah. the next hour of my life so was you playing music at this point yeah, um, yeah well like I got it, I kind of was I kind of got into so I was listening to music and then I got into music and then I wanted to start making music but I didn't have anything we had a piano in our house I'd write some tunes on that
3: you say you write some tunes. You had piano lessons as, as as a younger lad or anything like Not
1: that. Not really. I started taking them. I didn't get very. I'm like. It's kind of weird. Like academically, I'm like. Academically, I was actually really good, except at music. And weirdly, I got to like grade two on the piano, and I, I think I found my grade two certificate the other day. But the thing was, I was always interested in making my own stuff rather than learning other people's. Yeah. Um, and so I'd sort of tink around the piano at home, but it would be pretty awful nonsense, you know. Um, but I really wanted to get a keyboard, and then I saved up... Oh, no. First of all, I got a keyboard for a Christmas present, which was the Yamaha PSS 680. Right. Uh, which was a sort of Yamaha home keyboard, had a bunch of drum pads at the bottom. Uh, actually has a very cool FM synthesizer in it if you know how to program it which obviously i learned because there's not a lot else to do with it and it has loads of crap preset sounds and loads of cheesy auto rhythms um and so i would start trying to work out trying to write tracks on it you couldn't do a lot with it um you know i didn't have a sequence or anything any way of recording them i just had to record it on the tape and play live but It was, you know, as a whole new world for me, really exciting just to play on a keyboard and have different sounds. And I I was really obsessed by keyboards at this point. I really wanted to get like a proper keyboard. And um, in a very weird thing that is probably a whole different world to talk about, but I I was also quite into computer games and I started writing for a computer game magazine when I was 13, which is quite weird. I used to, to run the cheats column for a magazine called Game Zone. Okay. Which also Charlie Brooker wrote for. Charlie Brooker wrote for that, didn't he? And Jane Goldman, who, who, who's writing the Game of Thrones prequel and wrote, like, Kick-Ass and all that sort of stuff. Danny Wallace involved in that? I don't th- think so, but... Right. I didn't, not when I was involved yeah. with it, but um, anyway, from that, I earned money, and that money went into my bank account and I saved up so I could buy a keyboard which is the Korg Wave Station, and a Fostex 4-track. And I used to go to London every week to go look at it and play on it and ask the shop assistant questions about it, who must have hated me and I think was so happy when I finally bought it because I was just like, he's like, oh, you're back. What are you here to see? Yeah, the Korg Wave Station. Can it do this? Yes. Or how do I do this? And uh, so eventually managed to get a 4-track, and a synthesizer and then I could start making music and then that was like the beginning of everything really okay
3: and at school was that was the creative side of things encouraged
1: uh, It was. I kept it super quiet at school why so, because right, okay so I started doing computer game this right for computer game when I was 13 right so you're like that's kind of pretty awesome except you suddenly realize that uh rather than everyone be really excited for you everyone's like like slightly jealous or annoyed at you for doing it so i kind of learned that maybe it's better just to shut up about stuff and just do it yeah so i would i basically denied i was even doing this it was quite weird you was getting free computer games The computer game things people knew about, but the music no one at school knew about. Right. And, like, I just did it secretly. Yeah. At home, and I would go to clubs, which we will get onto in a tick. I'd be going to, like, quite mad nightclubs at, like, 15, like, really experimental electronic things, soaking up all this stuff, making music. Then I got a record out when I was 16 of all this music, and we'll probably get onto that in a bit. But, like, I... Then MTV interviewed me and did a piece on me on MTV, right? And it was like, we've got to do this. I I bunked off school to do the interview. Who interviewed you? I can't remember. It was around... uh, I can't remember who interviewed me, but it was around that time, it was people like Toby Ames, you know him? Yeah,
3: Eddie Temple Morris.
1: Yeah, it was a bit before him, I think. Right. Um, But anyways, weird stuff. Like We went and filmed outside my school, but I was basically playing truant off school. And I was like, I must not get caught. No one can see me here. And and then no one really saw it. And then some people saw it. And I was just like, no, nah, that's someone else. That's not me. <laughs> really? You didn't embrace it? Nah, It was too weird. Like, stuff I was doing was really weird. you got to remember, I was making, like, weird electronic, avant-garde, elect- like, electronic music. In the vein of? In the vein of, I don't know, kind of like, it's kind of quite music concrete like... In the vein of, like, people like The Orb and um, Future Sound London, Mm -hmm. those sort of things. But at the time, I'd be seen as, like, a weirdo for liking that kind of music because it was quite a lot older than everyone else, so I just looked like a pretentious twat. Mm. So I thought, better just keep my mouth shut. Yeah. Um, Which is what I did. Uh, But eventually, I think everyone, like, people kind of worked it out.
3: Did you not have... Did you not feel a sort of connection to to many people at school? Like, was, was there other people like-minded?
1: Uh, yeah, no. I mean, it was like... It was weird in the... Like, early on, no, not at all. Like, no-one was into this music. It was super odd. But then, I think about 16 or 17, like, Ninja Tune turned up, and Moax I had some friends at school, and we'd go, like... We'd drive into London to go to, like... Again, we'll talk about when as so we get to clubs. Yeah. Um, and it slowly became a bit more mainstream. I mean, it's really hard to like actually explain how underground electronic music was in the early nineties um, because there was nothing, there was like waste ground. It was like, I, could, I used to go into the beggar's banquet in Kingston and I owned the entire CD electronics section. Of the record store, every single CD they had for electronic new music, I had, because there was only like seven of them. It was like the Grid, Fortune Five, Aphex Twin, field uh, uh, that hadn't even come out then, Model Five Hundred or something like that, and um, and so I was kind of doing the stuff in. You know, you remember the internet didn't exist, all this kind of yeah. stuff. So it's just literally like it's just you. You're into it, and you're kind of on your own. Um, so yeah, I was kind of I was. Yeah, I was doing a, like quite mad things around that time. We looking back at it you're like, "Wow, that's interesting. Did you enjoy school?" Yeah, I mean I got in school fine. School I went to school, did my work, got my good grades, you know, not in music, though. Nah. I <laughs> got uh, okay grades in music, but I didn't do it for A level and then school was just a thing I went to and I was kind of doing things like I was doing all stuff outside of school and that's what I was really into. Yeah. And so I think I was more into doing what I was doing outside of school. And, um, you know, I liked everyone at school. I didn't have any, like, bad experiences there. What did uh, you want to be? Did you want to be a musician? Well, it depends how far back you go. You go back, like, when I was, like, five, I wanted to be an astronaut. But I think, yeah, I wanted to do music, but I didn't really think that would happen. I thought I'd end up working in advertising, to be honest. Like, I'd, Why? I'd, uh, I, was, I, was, I was kind of interested in, like, being creative, and that felt like a world you could kind of... Yeah, I was also writing at the same point. You know, it's like I was kind of being a journalist, but I sort of saw because I ended up doing a lot of journalism. So I ended up being like the club editor, editor of ID. Oh, really? Yeah, um, I used to write the Telegraph about technology, Esquire, um, like a whole bunch of people. I was writing a lot about video games, and I was doing a, I was doing a ton of different things. It was a really interesting time. I was writing for Wired. Uh, you know, the internet hadn't really happened. And the world of technology was very exciting and optimistic, like really utopian. Like, loads of people, exciting ideas about how this could change the world and make it better, like how we could kind of reforge society. And that was, I always found that very exciting about the kind of utopian beliefs that the internet, like what was becoming the internet, could bring. And. It wasn't really till 97 or 98 when the internet bubble started exploding and money started pouring in. It was really interesting to see the toxic quality of money in terms of, on a sort of in bracket scene where you're like, this is, you know, I I always remember thinking that's great, money's coming into this thing, it's going to make it better. But actually, what happened was whereas previously you had people who were interested in something because they were interested in it now you have people who are interested in things because there was money in it and then those are the people that won and those are the people that came in and you know the internet now is like horrific and it's so weird to go back to the very early days like i you know i have a facebook page because i kind of can't stand what i think facebook's trying to do and it's really weird. I'd have arguments with people for ages. They'd be like, oh, you're so stubborn and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, no, no, Facebook are doing really bad things and they're trying to like privatize all communication. They're trying to own communication between people and like own everything about you. And it's only now that people kind of go, oh yeah, maybe they are doing that. Um, uh, but, you know, like when I was doing stuff on in the internet, it was like, I don't know, on a crazy tangent here, but like, you know, I had a really sweet story recently, which was... So I, I was kind of doing... I had like an internet site around 96, probably. At that time, I think there were less than 1,000 internet sites on the internet. That's crazy. And I was working with these people who called State 51, who were really interesting, still doing really cool music tech stuff. And I just fell in with them just through doing my writing. And this guy emails me to say his name's Daniel Pemberton as well. Because this is the kind of thing, the internet was so small that the idea that there was someone else with the same name as you was so exciting that you'd actually email them to tell them you had the same name. And this guy worked in film, and he worked in film construction. And um, we had a little chat. He'd found my website because I had a website. And so in the old days, having a website, even before Google existed, uh, Yahoo didn't really exist. And the way you found out about websites was almost equivalent of like someone told you about them, and you'd have to like enter, write yeah. down the address, and then enter it in. Or you'd read about it somewhere. It's like going to a cafe and you see something on the wall. Yeah. So he found about me, emailed me, we chatted a bit, and I always wondered. You know, it's like a weird thing. You remember it, right? Twenty years later, probably yeah, about twenty years. Over those time, I ended up being a film composer. I always, every now and again, I always wonder, I wonder if that other Daniel Pemberton remembers, remembers me. You know, because I'd look on his IMDB, and it, he'd down. He did some cool things. He worked with David Fincher, and he was like construction manager. Anyway, I'm at Warner Brothers in LA, and I'm doing Ocean's 8, and I'm sort of working on the lot for a while. And someone comes into the office, and they goes, hey, is this your bike? Uh, and they show me this photo and it's a bike And it says Dan Pemberton on it, like an old bike And I'm like, no But where was that? I think I might know whose bike that is And, and they're, like, they're like They're like, oh it's by the com- uh, It's called the commissionary or something Where they have their food I'm like, really whereabouts so They explain it, I'm like, okay, this is really weird I've got to leave this meeting right now, okay So I run out, like some Bad Richard Curtis movie Like, oh my god, this guy's here um, so, I'm running around trying to find this bike. So, I've written him a note saying, Hey, you might not remember me, but please this note. And I'm running out trying to find this bike. So, I'm running around. I can't see this bike anywhere. I'm like, Oh man, like, I'm here for a few days, but I'm like, Everyone, keep, you know, keep your eye out for this bike. Someone goes past on a bike. I'm like, Oh my God, is that the bike? No, it's not. Go down another alleyway. Someone else goes past on a bike. I'm like, Is that? Hang on, that is the bike. And this guy goes past for the bike with Dan Pemberton. And I go, oi, oi, Dan Pemberton. And he stops. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, this might sound quite weird, but I'm Daniel Pemberton. And he's like, oh my God, yeah, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> and he recognized me because he said, oh, I've been watching your career over the years. And it was really nice. And we met up and had this really, like, really beautiful chat, actually. Because, like, you know, I was still living with my mum and dad when, I con- when he contacted me. And. And it's this a mad thing of being at Warner Brothers, like in the middle of like, you know, this huge film yeah. thing, to meet this guy I'd met on the internet so long ago that people would email you, to tell you you had the same name. That's incredible. Yeah, that's really sweet. Fantastic. That was a bit of a weird, like, I don't know how we got onto that. But, yeah. Um, well, we'll pull it yeah. back with track four, okay. which is the first song you bought in a record shop. That will go back to Jean-Michel Jean Michel Jean. Okay, can you remember you bought it? The Essential Jean-Michel Jean, I bought at Langley Records in East Molesy, um, uh, which was the local record store, uh, which actually was still going until about a year ago. It was a nuts record store that had... The weirdest thing was, I went back there, I think two years ago, just to go see it. Because my parents were like... I went back to see my parents, and they are like, oh, yeah, Langley's are still there. And the weirdest thing was, the stock felt like it had not changed oh really since I'd last been there in like 1990 or something I'm not joking it was so weird you still like, had the complete dance section um, no it wouldn't have even got to it was still like quite slow on catching up so it'd have like the Hot Butter Moog album in the electronic yeah. section of Wendy Carlos the prices had gone up he'd whacked all the prices it was like crazy I remember there was like a. I think it was like Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch on cassette and he was like 8 quid I'm like who's going to buy anyway it's not there anymore probably for the reason the guy who ran it I think was a bit eccentric yeah um, but anyway I bought this record essential Jean-Michel Jean 14 of Jean-Michel best tracks grey cover little squares of each of the little things a few li- notes inside of which I read and you back to front little compact disc logo totally remember that CD and we just burned that CD I quite want to go listen to it now actually and that was my first, like, purchased, proper purchased album. And, yeah, I just, like, caned it forever. And that was a really exciting... That time of buying records and them meaning so much to you and you saving up and... Again, it's, like, very special. And it's a veil You know, it's a shame you don't get that anymore. like the kind Talking of, about the journey of it. Yeah, just, the, you know, even the fact of remembering... Being in the store and, you know, picking this object up and finally having enough money to buy it, you know, and when they're good, you know, that's, like, the best thing ever. I mean, I really think with music, like, if you said, certain albums in my life, if you were, like, that album's going to cost you 10 grand or that album's going to cost you 100 grand, I'd be like, yeah, you know what? That would be worth it. What would they be? Give me a couple. Uh, Apollo by Brian Eno, I'd probably pay a lot of money for. Um uh some debussy stuff um what other ones were like I give like big bucks for some Peter Gabriel soundtracks okay um uh yeah it's weird I mean it's, it's such an amazing art form music in the sense of like you can just make stuff and it exists and anyone can experience it like it's like for me one of the greatest art forms because it is so accessible yet it can like for me art is all about changing the way you see the world like good art makes you see or feel the world slightly differently and that's all art boils down to and it's it can make you feel things you don't know what they are and that's really great where you're like I don't know what I feel about this but it's making me feel some kind of emotion or it's making me see things differently and music is so powerful at doing that, which is why it's so it's like so cool to kind of get to do it. it's very democratic I think as an art form. So before we
3: get on to track five, which is the song that soundtrack your time clubbing. I yeah. think we're gonna have a few here. Um, you said at sixteen you was, you was putting records out.
1: Yeah. Okay, so what were you putting So on? I I kinda of did this I did this record called Bedroom. Uh, which was, like, basically stuff I'd made in my bedroom on, like, tape machines and, like, anything I could do to make. It was basically a corg wave station, which I could program like a complete ninja, because that's all I had. And that was another thing I learned a lot about, was just having one one machine and learning every single aspect of it. Like, now I've got a zillion things, and I don't know how to use them nearly as well. Mm -hmm. Like your Zoom recorder there, right? If I had that, I've got one like that record eh, change the inputs whereas I don't know, 20 years ago I'd learn every single little four track aspect on it how yeah. I could like jiggle things to make them sound cool if I fuck this button at this time and yeah. press that I'd get a weird effect and by having less I learned so much like, like I learned, you know how to program synthesizers a bit because the core wave station infrastructure like architecture was very weird kind of unique uh, um, but yeah that was like super valuable so I was doing so I did this record went to a lot of clubs which I got onto got a few record labels offered to put it out r and flew me out to Belgium for the day which was the time my parents I think suddenly took this seriously and offered me like this big big deal but I was a bit scared of signing a five album deal because uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do and I didn't like the idea of being locked in or something
3: that's a smart mindset for, uh, for a very for young man. Like, normally, you'd think someone offers you a five-track of a five-album yeah. deal at that age, you'd be like, Yep, I want to be a rock star, I'm off. Like, yeah,
1: but my stuff wasn't really rock, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. I was just making this like odd music, and it was kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just making, I'm doing this thing, I'm enjoying. So, you making a living out of it. Uh... Not really. I was making a living out of journalism. Yeah. Um, but not really out of music. Like, that took quite a while. Um, but I wasn't, you know, I'm, I've never really done things for the, for the money. I mean, I've kind of never really done anything for the money. Like, I mean, obviously I've taken jobs on that I've thought, that's better paid than that one. Yeah, of course. And I, um, But it's never been why I've done things. And that's quite interesting in a way. It was like because I've been super lucky in that regard. And like everything I've sort of done has always been because I wanted to do it, I wanted to learn something. Even still doing film music, I'm just about to do this new film, which I can't say yet, but it's like a big superhero y nonsense sort of film. Which is not my kind of cup of tea often. But I know I can do something kind of bonkers and stupid on it. So I'm like look, really looking forward to just yeah. doing something weird on it rather than the, the usual thing. I mean, hopefully I can do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's kind of... Yeah, I've always just been like driven by what I enjoy doing and then just got lucky enough. And finding ways of keeping... I think the one thing I had was like I was clever enough to work out that you needed money to keep being able to do the thing you wanted to do yeah so I'd always be conscious of that of like being able to like at least keep something running so I could keep being creative sure let's talk clubbing then okay so what did you like to dance to? Uh, I mean I'll dance to anything right I, I like nothing more then like my favorite state is probably like I'm a bit drunk I'm at a great party there's a lot of space that I can and I'm feeling good enough to do what I call abstract dancing right nice which is, explain which is where I feel like I'm going to rewrite all the rules of conventions of dancing right and I probably look like it's not even a probably I look like a fucking idiot but Amazing. I'm just really enjoying it in your mind you're Kate Bush though right uh, yeah it's like no I'm beyond Kate Bush I'm like some kind of like 3D <laughs> computer game like shape that's flying out lasers from his hands or something um, clearing the dance floor of everyone else yeah no it's like you've got to kind of like no you, I'm always like hovering in the corner I will give I, you know I'll give it a lot of energy because yeah. I, I kind of don't really care what people think about me yeah so I don't that's again one of my few strengths in that I'll just quite happy to dance like an idiot. Yeah. Um, but my first clubbing stuff is really weird because it's not dancey. It's like, it was ambient music. So mm-hmm. ambient... So it's like early 90s, things like The Orb, and there's a band called The Grid who are also very important. I haven't really talked Dave about it. Dave Ball. Yeah, so I, Richard Norris and Dave Ball. I knew Richard Norris. I used to write to them as pen pals because I was really into them. I'd be like, oh, I love your new record. Can you ask me, answer me some questions? And they wrote back to me. Fucking great. So... I, was, I used to write a lot of letters to people and I was a real pain in the ass kid to be honest but um, they tolerated it and um, yeah I went to see them you know I got they had a record out called 456 um, and it was a kind of like electronica goes slightly pop in That's a way right, of yeah. Virgin. but I loved that record I listened to it over and over again and it was experimental rich you know it was really exciting it was a really exciting time to begin into electronic music and and there were people like The Orb, The Future Sound of London, King Brian you know, that whole kind of world. And um, so the ambient music scene was kind of kicking off. And somehow, I don't even know how I really got... So KLF done Chill Out by then? Yeah. I and mean, the KLF, huge impact. We haven't really talked about the KLF. That's probably... Yeah. I'll stick that somewhere in there. Okay. Like KLF, massive, massive... Yeah. Like bands that, like... The only bands I ever cared about was really the KLF. Yeah. Like, I was always annoyed that I didn't have a band, you know, at score everyone's like, oh, I really like Guns N' Roses or this thing. I didn't like any of that. I didn't care for any of them, but the KLF, I like, they're like, oh my yeah. God, that's my band. And they split up pretty much a month after I got into them. That, that guy who had Rendezvous Houston
3: on VHS, yeah. it was his son that went to me, it's a KLF album, it's called Chiller,
1: Have a Listen. I don't know. Never look back. See, I found that album quite scary the first time I, I got it. I, I found it weird. Like, I had, I'd had i heard Space as well. I was a massive Keller fan. And Space... Space was, come first, didn't it? Space is super, like, much more rare. Space is basically Jimmy Coulty, second template for the Orb, mm. which Alex Patterson kind of just basically ran away with, and then, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with your Orb, mm-hmm. Alex Patterson history, but... It always feels like Jimmy Court, set it up, Axe Pats and ran away with it and then just got other people to do the Jimmy Courtney work. work. Um, uh, but, um, so I started, the first, so the first club I ever went to was a thing called Telepathic Fish, which was in a squat uh, called the Cool Tan on Cold Harbour Lane in Brixton. I think I was about 14 or 15. I went on my own with my mate uh, and it was pretty terrifying like Brixton was pretty freaky around that you know Brixton like now has changed so much but even then it was before they brought CCTV in yeah. and I remember the CCTV in Cold Harbor Lane was this massive thing because beforehand it was just like that was the space that was the scariest yeah. bit of London but I didn't know this as a kid because yeah. I just thought this is London Yeah. so I went there with my mate to we- a squat yeah, I we went to this mad party that had this inflatable. It had this like big, um, white, tentacled object in the middle that breathed up and down, made of paper, like this kind of mad mural. There's under UV lights, and everyone just like hung out on the floor and listened to ambient music. And telepathic fish was this girl called Chantel and this guy called Kev. Now Kev is now DJ Food. Right. And Chantel was me with Calyx. Oh. Um, and it was like hippie squat vibes, vegan food only, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so I used to go to a lot of events like that and I started getting into that scene. So is this like Whirly Gig as well, was that? Yeah, it's like Whirly Gig. If you imagine like a slightly cooler version of Whirly Gig. So there was still sort of Transglobal Underground and all that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, Transglobal. And then so... Mega Dog, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So it start. It was like this was like a more underground. I would say more underground, but like a, it was. It was very much that scene. But this was like very much focused on music. And I think I met Mixmaster Morris at one of these things, and he became quite important because I would give him tapes, and he was a big champion early on, and he he wrote about them, and then that got interesting, which is how I got a record deal, um, and so I'd start to go to a place like that and I, I, then I went to like uh, used to be this club called The Vox in Brixton which is like mm-hmm. downstairs I used to go there all night no drugs didn't do any drugs and I would literally stay there till 6 in the morning and get the first train back thinking of smoke and all this kind of stuff but I was just so into the music and um, I just love i like Anything like weird and electronic, it's just like absorbing it all. And I was going to places like now, I'd be like, Wow, that's that's a freaky place to go. Like the Vox was this mad venue that was all like cages downstairs, was all like dark. And it was kind of like a sort of offshoot of rave culture where it was like more experimental and I really I really loved that. So that was like a really seminal part of of my in, Introduction to music, and then through that, that all splintered into lots of different scenes. And then you got this, you know, the other scene that was really big for me from that was uh, the Blue Note, when the Blue Note was really happening in Hoxton. Mm-hmm. So that'd be like nights like Stealth, which was an intertune night, um, Dusted, which was a Mo Wax night, and Metalheads and Talvin Singh's night. I used to just drive up, had a shit shit car, red Austin Metro. The only car I've ever had. I used to drive up to London from my home. We'd go to a club, try and get in. You know, I think at one point, I wasn't even old enough, I was eight. I think I think the first few times... Like, the first time Morax did a night was a place called The Gardening Club. Mm-hmm. It's a queue around the corner. I remember I somehow got in, and I was. I remember remembering at the bar with Richard Norris, who was the guy from The Grid, mm-hmm. and this other guy who used to play keyboards in The Grid. And we were talking about how exciting this music was, but it'd be cooler if it was tougher... And like sped up a bit and a bit beefier. The guy next to me was Alex, the guy from the keyboards. He was, stayed up the propeller heads. Right. Alex, I can't remember his surname. And I'm always, I always like to think it was from that conversation <laughs> in the bar. Uh, it's really weird. I had um, Eddie Pillar uh,
3: on, on this podcast and, and he was talking about us, I mean, Bluno. And, yeah. and just when you realize, the impact. I mean, the four nights you mentioned there. Yeah. A week. I mean, that's fucking ridiculous. I mean, how much stuff grew out of them, them nights? It's yeah. It's bonkers. I mean, we, we you know we, we, we're a stone's throw from Shoreditch now, and it's a it's a far different place now.
1: I know. It's really. I mean, I went to the, I went to. Um, this exhibition this is an exhibition at the Saatchi Gallery at the moment, which is this punch drunk uncle thing, and I was kind of interested in seeing what they'd done. It's like 20 quid a ticket. All right, I'll pay for that to go in, see it. There's a rave exhibition, 20 quid a ticket. I'm oh, not, I've
3: not been to that yet.
1: Yeah, I'm like, I don't want to pay 20 quid a ticket to go see, but I've paid 20 quid to someone, so I snuck into it. And I love the way the whole thing was about illegal acts, and I think, hey, this is exactly where you should go <laughs> see it. It's like sneak into this. And it was a you yeah, know, it's a really cool exhibition, actually. And it, you know, I got quite nostalgic at this thing that that London has feels like it's lost which is a there's no space anymore because every single bit of space there's no space for weirdness every bit of space has a value and a property worth and and so we're missing you know I've gone this whole big rant about like how like what's happened to London has destroyed the like you know a big part of the creative blood of Britain in some ways like Blue Note is a really fascinating example. I went there, right? I started getting into record scratching. People like DJ Crush, DJ Shadow, Psychonauts, um, DJ Food, all these people. Uh, I'm seeing these people do record scratching. I'm like, this is amazing. I got really into it. It stuck with me forever. I was always like, I want to do something this one day. Takes me 20 years maybe, but Spider-Man, do the Spider-Man movie. I'm like, I want to get record scratching in a film score finally. And that Spider-Man score is a really big... Hugely influenced by my life as a teenager in hip hop clubs. Do you scratching yourself? Uh, oh man, I'm a rubbish scratcher. <laughs> uh, but no, I got this guy called DJ Blakey who was brilliant. Yeah. And um, but it's you know it's really interesting how the all these things flow through you, like all these experiences early on, like going to like electronic clubs and like listening to sound, and you know. Like I love the way with ambient music, there was no rules, there was no song structure. It's like could be whatever it it was, it was, a complete freedom. A song could be thirty seconds, it could be thirty minutes, and it could have all electronics, or it could have like someone singing, or it could have beats, it could have anything. And I always felt like I was always searching for a kind of freedom of expression in music. I hate like I hate all the kind of like this is techno, this is you know this is drum and bass, and I found. People, you know, those tunes are great. But growing up, I, was always, I always wanted music to be this sort of thing that you couldn't even explain what it was. Like like the favourite tracks I've ever done, I don't know how you describe what they are. Mm. And the best, the most exciting music, I always think, is stuff where you don't know what it is. You, you, you sort of, you can't give it a label. Yeah.
3: I uh, was literally having that conversation my uh, guest last week he chose um well he, he, he he mentioned tomorrow never knows and and that always makes me think of falls gold and them two records for me feel like they're out, out of time I, I i don't feel like I could I guess people go, Stone Roses indie music, but I, d- I don't think that sounds like any other Stone Roses record. I think it sounds like it doesn't belong anywhere. It yeah. It just it's it's got its own uniqueness that and and definitely some of that stuff on Moax definitely say that for a lot of stuff on there. Uh, um, yeah, it's
1: weird. Some of it's like because, you know, the guy died recently he did a funk mob and I was listening to that. I was like, oh my god, that track's great. And it's yeah it's really interesting some of that stuff some of the stuff is dated really badly some of it's dated really well like the Shadow stuff is always really fascinating but but then you know he's also but I also remember being very disappointed with DJ Shadow when I discovered David Axelrod and I was just like oh man half your records are someone else's records and it was nice that um, a lot of the Axelrod stuff got
3: reissued last year or the year before and uh, and and felt like sort of Everybody, you know, more people than, I guess, just the heads were starting to realise who he was and, and, and just how incredible yeah. an artist uh, he, he, he was. Um, aside from, you, you know, you saying what you wanted from music, what did you want from
1: clubbing like on a night out? What did you want? Well, it depends what age I was. <laughs> okay. Um, but I was, I think early on, I was just absorbing... The sound, like just trying to like, like just immerse myself in this world of music and this like, you know, this kind of whole different culture, which I like really, like found very exciting. Um, then, like hip hop nights, I love just going, like just love the whole energy. I love dancing, you know, I, you know, like the early stuff, I wasn't doing that. I was just like standing in the back nodding, but later I just love like jumping about. Um, and then, kind of like big beat sort of stuff came along, and like that was meant to be a bit uncool, but I really liked it because of like the the brashness and the energy. Um, and then after that, it sort of felt like, like the the end of the nineties. It started going into irony. There was even there was an easy listening period as well, which I found quite interesting, and that got me into exotica stuff. But then like 333 used to have, I remember like there's this guy called Blind Ollie Soft Rock and he used to play soft rock stuff. And it was quite funny playing these like records that were sort of really bad. But then that became more and more like the thing. hmm And then everything started getting like, like super ironic and dance music kind of died very quickly and it went back to guitar bands. I was like, oh no, we're back to like the same old stuff. Mm. And then it never felt like for me it kind of, you know and all the clubs shut down, you know, and they either became the dance clubs they became like you know a lot more intense and kind of quite druggy or or you know the, the the sort of clubs I was at were just you know blue note went i mean so many so many of the clubs don't exist anymore um, so but it continues to happen I know it's like one it's it's really funny it's like we've got a if you think if you go abroad and you talk about Britain, like apart from most people now going eh, eh, at you, um, <laughs> like like how our cultural reach through music is insane. It's like it's only when you go abroad you realise like what does it mean to be British? And it's like the Queen, Harry Potter, Beatles, like Rolling Stones, the Kinks, um, you know. There's, there's there's a bunch of things which are very British and so many of them are music and cultural and in London we've got like two opera houses I can't think of any venues in central London where you can watch a band like that are in central London like are there any? Like, I think so yeah it's super weird right and you think <laughs> never thought of that you know you think look I yeah. You know, Volop House is amazing, and you go see, like a friend of mine did not an recently, and it's phenomenal, and it's amazing. You're seeing all these people, like, who are all, you know, being paid well to be creative, and creating amazing work. Um, but it's weird how there's no, not a similar form of protectionism for for music, for, like, more contemporary music. yeah, And... How it's just left to commercial forces, and then, you know, commercial for, you know, commercial forces just make everything the same. It's like the stuff that always stuff always happens great when no one knows what's going on. Yeah. Like the greatest work always happens when people are making money. No one knows how they're making money, but they like it. Please make some more. Just do whatever you want. And there's resources to do stuff, but no. No one telling you they know best. Yeah. Um, and all the spaces for that, for, like, running clubs or doing anything weird have all gone. And I blame Boris Johnson, because he's a total and utter... Um, there's a bunch of other people you can blame as well. There's a lot yeah. of them, mate.
3: Yeah. Um, so we spoke briefly, because... Um, you've been flat out and we've been having sort of a little bit of back and forth today trying to um, arrange uh, to, to get a bit of time with you yeah. and, uh, and so a, a lot of these were, were thrown in off the cuff quite, quite quickly and, and I did mention that um, you had to pick a, a favourite a favourite artist from your own county uh, yeah. earlier and uh, we've trawled Surrey yeah. and uh... I mean I could do my
1: street where I live I don't, I don't want to say where I live but the street I live on in London let's do that because they rehearsed Dark Side of the Moon on my street oh mate there you go and um, so um, yeah I live near like kind of near London Bridge and they uh, used to be found out I only found this out like a couple of years ago there was a place where they Pink Floyd used to come and do rehearsals of Dark Side of the Moon and that's an amazing record just down the road on my road yeah incredible you're a big Floyd fan then uh, yeah, no, I love that record. I think that record's absolutely phenomenal. I think some of it some of their stuff's a bit hit and miss, but like when they're good, they're like so a friend of mine once said he's like he's a French guy, he's like, ah, oh, it is like champagne, you know, which is like always very lovely to drink. There used to be a rehearsal studio actually re- even closer to me, and that got shut down as well. But I had a really weird, just as a really bizarre anecdote of like watching this documentary on E17. You know, when they try to get back together again. Oh, my fucking life. Have you yeah. seen that?
3: Yeah, it's great. Mate, no one remembers that. Oh, And I it's when they go and see the record label, right? Yeah. And none of them want to, to be like, Tony doesn't want to see Brian. Yeah. And, and then the, the, the meeting just comes with Tony walking out shaking his fist and then Brian walking out holding his face not long after their, their, their
1: big record company meeting again. It's amazing. They had this massive argument in it. I'm watching it with a mate around my house. I'm like, they're outside my house, because this rehearsal studio is near my house, and it's really odd. They have this big argument, and I'm like, they're outside my front door. I mean, it's weird. because obviously filmed ages ago. Yeah. But it's really weird to be watching this. So we've got all the greats, you know, E17, Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd. <laughs> Toss up between those two. I'll yeah. go for the Floyd.
3: Final track. A song that many may not know that you would like
1: them to hear. Uh, all right, this is a weird one. I'm going to go for, uh, only because I couldn't really think, it was all a bit last minute and I kind of just made it up on the spot. There's a track, which I don't even really know who it's by. Okay. I think it's by the, um, the producer, Reton, who does quite yeah. a lot of EDM electronic stuff. But it's a weird sort of Mozart um, goes disco, kind of record, which presses lots of buttons for me because it's ambitious, it's got lots of weird things going on, it's got a cool groove, it's hooky, um, and it's, got, uh, I'm trying to look up what it's called, it's like, he spelt it differently, so I can never remember what it's actually called. So it's like based on Einklein Nacht music. Yes, Einklein Night music, but I don't even know, it's called, uh, I can never pronounce it, Last it Anissima Which I should be able to pronounce It's basically like It's coming off my iPhone The last day of this iPhone as well <laughs> It's being updated later <laughs> But it's like a kind of just disco Like It's got like Presses my cheesy Hooky buttons But it's got this really cool modern edge And And he did this record and I thought it was all going to be stuff like that. I couldn't wait. It's like the, it's so long. I was like, I cannot wait for this record to come out. Yeah. And it was just like nudely electronic, proggy. I was just like, ugh. And it was fine. The record was fine. But it was like, no one wants to take a stand. They wanted, Everyone wants to do stuff that pitchfork will go two thumbs up. Yep. You know, I like people who are like out there just being like, right, this is it. Take it or fuck off. You yeah. know. And there's all a cliche of like that, which is like some kind of like, you know, rock star, like, this is my thing. But it's like, the really brave stuff is stuff that you have no idea what it is. It doesn't fit in any genre. It's new. Yeah. And there's still so much thinking about genres and, and, like, how people... You know, people don't even, like... Yeah, my stuff. No-one really cares about film music. And that's actually really good because it means I don't have any other voices crowding me in what I'm doing. I mean, sometimes it's a shame because you're like, "Oh, it'd be nice if more people kind of actually were aware of this stuff." But um, when you're in a band, you like doing any kind of music, you have this whole industry that's built around chatter, around like what they think of your yeah. stuff, and actually just not having those voices around is really cool because you just get to just do whatever you want. I've been making sounds out of a creaky, creaky door. I've like played this as well; it's quite good. This is I was on holiday let me just find this i hope i haven't wiped it off i just updated my os and it's probably destroyed everything um it's now going to tell me what's new in voice. oh i don't care right uh uh so look here's here's uh here's a bunch of door squeaks i recorded in in um in in uh greece oh, I mean, that's a good door squeak. Man, it was a really good door squeak. I spent about <laughs> 20 minutes squeaking this door back and forth. And I was like, it was this little apartment in Hydra, and I think the neighbours must have been there. There was neighbours? <laughs> yeah, they were not...
2: Fucking <laughs> like. no.
3: They They
1: must have just thought, what's going on? Because <laughs> I did a lot of slamming early on. I'd do a squeak and a slam, and then I realised the slam would be annoying, so I did a big bunch of slams at the end. <laughs> it's really good I mean it's a fucking great ball <laughs> so I've been sampling that I'm up I'm sure that was one of the early Apex Twin albums you're just playing I mean I've been sampling it up <coughs> like actually, what, I might have a little thing of it I've been, so we've sampled it up and I've been like just filling with it and like trying to turn it into things um, uh, I'll probably delete oh no here's, here's a video of some of the noises this, this is it like slow down and put through distortion now <laughs> Yeah, and so that's something I can, you know, I can turn into something and then maybe put orchestral elements or something weird on it, you know, just something different. And like, and that's the fun thing about my job is I just get to kind of do anything I want a lot of the time. I mean, that's completely untrue because I have to do what everyone else wants me to do. But I basically try and make everyone else think I'm doing what they want to do and I'm actually trying to do what I want to do. That's a lovely place to finish. Yeah. There we go. Dan, thank you very much,
3: okay, mate. I'd I'd love to have finished on the door slam, but it didn't come. I was waiting right, for it no, to no, slam. No, no, wait, Hang on, let's let's just let's get a door
1: slam because I definitely report. Let me just see if we can get a door slam. Maybe you can edit it so it just goes because uh, the door slams are really solid. So because um, I'm going to try and use them as snares. He'll right, be the first one. This will have one on. This will be the first one for. It's me talking to myself. There you go.
2: Perfect.
3: (laughs)
1: Oh, it's opened again.
3: There you go. The door has closed on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you massively to Daniel for giving up his time to doing that. Thanks again for for Ben uh, for facilitating this. And, yeah, I guess all that's left for me to say is... Oh, i tell you what there is. There is a new podcast as well, um, hosted by Ben, who put this together. He's got a podcast called The Person First, um, where he chats to all manner of very, very interesting people. And I suggest you go and listen to that. And also, Pop Bible Magazine has launched a podcast. So you can find out all about that. It's hosted by myself, uh, by my friend Adam, and by Scribius Pip. So, go over there and have a little listen and, and check out that. It's another new podcast for your listening devices. Well, there's two, in fact. Um, and yeah, I think we're done. I'll see you next time. Bye bye. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts, it's put together alongside Spotify and ACAST. And it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a lot of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com. It's off the Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Me, Stu Whipping.